Hello everyone, today is August 21st. Kids should definitely not be going to school. And if it's Friday, then this is the Delve. This is part two of our educator series. We've been speaking to folks across the country on the front line of education to get their views from the ground. Next Monday, we'll release a special episode covering all of the news of this week, covering everything from the Democratic National Convention to Steve Bannon's wild arrest. Stay tuned for that beauty. In this episode, we speak with Abraham Ovias, an education administrator from the New York City Public Schools, Dave Stieber, a high school teacher from the Chicago Public Schools, and Amy Mazalko, the president of the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. That is the official teachers union of the Milwaukee Public Schools. We continue with these incredibly amazing and deep conversations. Let's have a listen. Hey, Abraham, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Hey, I'm well. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for taking some time. Uh, I, you know, thought it was really important that we have some educators come on and the presence kind of like in this rush to reopen schools and things like that and just want to kind of get you know better perspective of what things are like on the ground why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so my name is abraham obages um i work for the new york city department of education i'll soon be entering my ninth year in the nyc doe um currently i am a teacher team leader so my job consists of uh, supporting teacher leaders across various schools in the Bronx, and I just coach them on their teacher leadership development. So these are teachers uh, who are tenured, um, highly effective, effective teachers who have leadership roles in their schools. So what I do is I go and I coach them and support them on their leadership journeys. I support three different superintendents. I'm also part of a team um, where each of us, we also support uh, various superintendents across the entire city, um, including all five boroughs. Prior to this role, I was a high school English teacher in the Bronx. I recently got my administrative license and then I landed on this role. Awesome. And now you have your work cut out for you by far. Yes. And, you know, again, it's like, this is why I know a lot because, you know, I, I so I have, like what 25 at least 25 schools on my caseload so i'm i'm able to see that every school is different everyone's needs are different every population every neighborhood is different so a general statement like let's reopen all schools does not consider the fact that every neighborhood in a city every state is different and their needs are different so first question is, you know, there seems to be this narrative that the administration is pushing that the pandemic has eased and things are so much better and schools can freely reopen. Does, does that match your experience? So I think that that observation is very subjective. You know, it's impossible to know what's happening across different communities, different neighborhoods. So to say that it's safe to reopen across the nation, I don't think is something that's like plausible to say. I think it's based, like it, it needs to be based on the immediate needs and priorities of the community. I also think that different school populations 
should also um, be considered when making statements like that. Um, I know from my experience, I, I still stay in touch with a lot of my high school teachers who are still teaching. And now that I work on a somewhat district level, they, they tend to message me and ask me for information. And one of their biggest concerns is the fact that they are elderly and as much as they will like to go back to work, they're also concerned of their health. Every school is different. Every community is different. The populations in the schools are different. The, you know, the, the teachers who need to go to work are different. So there's just a lot that needs to be considered. Um, so forcing people to go back when there's just still a lot of uncertainty and, and fear, I, I don't think that's responsible or safe. Like we're also talking about like the fact that like in New York City, you have like a minimum of two to three schools in like a two block radius. So like where I used to teach, there were, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, there, there were like nine schools a block away from each other. So not just one location, you have to also think about the fact that there are other schools in the neighborhood. So to have them all fully reopen in a place like New York City, that's a little crazy. Like, you know, when I used to teach every, you know, every morning I would go to the deli and like get a breakfast sandwich and, you know, sometimes I would have to call and order it because of how packed the stores were with, with kids. So this is deeper than, or more complex than just saying like, oh, schools need to reopen. Like you have to consider the fact that every neighborhood is different. Like we're not in the suburbs here in New York City. Unfortunately, we don't have the distance from one school to the other. Like, and some buildings share campuses. Like where I used to teach, there were three schools in the building. Some of the schools that I support have seven schools in one building. So we're talking about not just reopening your own school, but you also have to reopen it within a campus that shares the building and the facility with multiple other schools. I'm thinking about like the time frame that we have here, right? So it's like the end of July, schools are opening late August, early September? Uh, yes, early September. So it'll be quite a heavy lift to provide soap to every bathroom, potentially put clear dividers around every desk, uh, have masks, sanitizer, wipes, to have all of these things equipped in every school across, let's just say New York City. Heavy lift to do that between end of July and early September. Yep, and budgets are being cut severely. Yeah. So who's providing these things? How are schools supposed to purchase them and still provide an adequate, high-level, rigorous education to their students. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, and in, you, you would never, ever even think that like this was like an issue, the way the president's like, oh, no, we're going to reopen schools. We're going to do it. We're going to do it like tomorrow. And then it's like, whoa, there's like a whole bunch of steps that need to be completed. And there's no, I guess, no real talk about that. I haven't heard anything about you know providing schools with any extra funds have have you heard anything no the chancellor sent out several memos indicating various things that were going to be cut in order to somewhat withstand the blow 
of the budget cuts because it's it's crazy everything that's happening so a lot of things like are going to be cut like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of things are going to be cut in order to withstand the the consequences the effects of of this pandemic what's probably like the scariest thing that's going to be cut i think the possibility of some teachers students not receiving certain resources opportunities things that you know a lot of schools offer their students like in the afternoon um, certain supports there's also like a long list of other things um like teachers are not receiving money for example to make purchases necessary to start the school year um we always got money to like buy things that we needed for our classrooms and things like that teachers are not getting that now you're asking teachers to make these purchases, but they're not going to receive this money back um, in their paycheck. So on top of a pandemic and a lot of people, you know, have a lot of bills and things to pay, um, financial circumstances, like, you know, that's also, but I'm mostly concerned about teacher retention because of this. Oh, wow. That's like a whole different ball game. Yeah. Because of these budget cuts, I, I fear that some teachers who are not tenured maybe might um, get excess if if the school doesn't need them. So I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about um, our special ed population, students with disabilities, English language learners. A lot of people didn't, like, I mean, I'll speak from, like, what I saw on TV. Like, these populations weren't even considered. They weren't even in the conversation. So, like, now the physical spaces are closed. How are students with disabilities, English language learners, supposed to receive you know, an equitable, fair, high, rigorous education remotely. And that's also something that's challenging, right? So if these budgets are being cut, then how are these students supposed to get the resources and the the supports that they are entitled to? So that's also a concern too. Like I think, I think multiple things with the reopening of schools. I do think that if they have, like if they're going to be reopened, they need to be strategically reopened on a campus level, like it shouldn't just be like, oh, like my school in within this building that I share with X number of other schools. I think there needs to be like a campus-wide plan. I think that priority should be given to these special populations so that they are the ones receiving more kind of face-to-face with their teachers. I do feel for the kids who thrive off of social interaction, but, you know, it needs to be, there There just needs to be, like, a level of priority. That's kind of, like, where my head is, where, you know, certain populations should be prioritized over others. And I do think, and by the word priority, I don't want it to come across, like, I'm like, oh, like, this kid shouldn't be a priority because of this. But it's, like, if we're if we're talking about equity, right, and, like, providing equitable access, then I do think that the kids who need the resources and the supports immediately should receive those supports and should be prioritized. Basically, in a nutshell, like, I think schools need to get creative, and there's a lot of ways to do it. I always think about, like, well, if it were my school, what would I do? And I feel like those are some of the things that I would probably, you know, with other stakeholders, families, talk about and I do think that schools should include everyone in the conversation that it shouldn't just be like oh like we're being told we need to reopen so we're this is how we're going to reopen it's like no like you should get voices from 
everyone that's involved that's going to be impacted so that the decisions that you make are more informed and responsive to your community. So I, I just want to jump back a little bit because this is something I think that really gets kind of like forgotten. When there's like a sick kid at school, the next kid in the desk over gets sick. You know, everyone, it, it's, it's like a... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a thing. Then the teacher's sick. Yeah. They're in the teacher lounge. Then another teacher's sick. So the way that I want to answer that is I will say that teachers are like one of the most hardworking people and also one of the most stubborn people. And I say this, like you never hear in a educational program, training program or whatever, like, oh, if you need a day off, take your day. You're entitled to a mental health day. Or if you're not feeling well, stay home. Like you rarely hear that from a school leader or from a, you know, a, tr- a teacher training program. I myself am guilty of that. There's been so many times where I was not feeling well and for the sake of like my kids or like not wanting to fall behind with my planning or, you know, I would go to the school and teach the whole day and not feel good. So, you know, it, it, that was very irresponsible on my part because I am possibly getting other people sick. My intentions are good, but, <laughs> you know, like at the end of the day, it's not responsible. So, you know, and for a lot of kids, they have no choice, you know, like they might have a straight parent that's like, no, you're going to school, even if you're dying, go to school. Or for some kids, like school is an escape, like you don't know what their dynamics are at home. And like school is the only time that they're able to escape whatever it is that they're going through at home or you know, some families sometimes don't even have a meal and going to school is the only way that you eat. And you can be sick, you can be coughing or whatever, but at the end of the day, you're hungry or you miss your friends or you need a break from your house. So in terms of like cross-contamination, like a school building is like the easiest place to get sick. In terms of like just hygiene and and being mindful of like where you're like bodily fluids go when you're in a school building like everyone's different like you have people coughing in their hands or just coughing into the air you have students who could probably go the entire day without washing their hands there's no soap in the bathroom oh man i'm 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 happy this is a podcast because my face right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah like it's like (laughs) oh yeah like so when i was in a school like the Clorox wires would get locked up because, you know, they were like so hot, you know, like teachers always wanted their, their rooms to be sanitized and clean and smell fresh. And imagine now. Exactly. So like, imagine how it's going to be on like, you're probably going to get like <laughs> level 10. Yeah, you're probably going to get like one roll of Clorox wipes for the whole year. Like it's, it's just not feasible. Right. I guess, what do you wish you could change about the government's reaction? I mean, I covered a lot, perhaps like more funding, perhaps like a more thoughtful process to reopening. But I don't know. What do you wish you could change? I wish I can change their lack of compassion and strategic thinking. I think, you know, this situation is an adaptive challenge. And I think that the way that they're approaching it is very um, technical. Like, oh, schools are closed. We're going to reopen them. 
Right, and it's like it's way more complicated than that. And I also find it very interesting that you know, like this administration, they're all about like state rights and like, but then they're forcing states to reopen their schools. Like, why don't you just let them choose how they want to go about it? And why are you cutting federal funding or like threatening to cut federal funding? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They were like threatening. If if you don't open, we're going to withhold funding. Wait, wait the same funding we need to properly open and sanitize and you know protect our students and our schools that funding you're gonna hold that back it's very childish and i'm gonna keep it 100 with you i'm gonna keep it 100 with you i think that the real agenda in this is and i'm sorry to whoever i might offend or trigger in this podcast i think you know this administration has been very open about um funding private and charter schools and I have my own personal beliefs and I like thoughts about charter schools in particular, but I think that this is their way of making public schools like the bad guys and finding reasons or ways to additionally fund charter schools. I think that if we take a deeper look at who are the, the donors for these schools, where do they get their money from? that it could possibly be telling because it just doesn't make any sense. And at the end of the day, charter schools, private institutions, they get their money from, you know, donations and from people, you know, from families who who are wealthy, whereas public schools depend on federal funding. So if you're threatening to cut federal funding, like I feel like that's a backhanded way of trying to promote this other agenda that they've been trying to do for a very long time, which is to basically go full charter, full private. And I just, I don't think it's right. It, it's, it's kind of like extortion. It's like, oh, if you don't do this, then you're not going to get this money. And that is Abraham Ovias. Thank you so much, Abraham. Hi, Dave. Welcome to The Delve. Thank you for taking some time to speak with me today. How, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your school. I'm a high school teacher in Chicago Public Schools. I've been teaching uh, in CPS since 2007. teach history mainly. I also uh, started recently teaching a poetry class. I have an English certification too. I just don't use that one as much. I'm a national board certified uh, social studies teacher. My, my partner is a CPS teacher as well. She teaches French. And then our two children are both in Chicago Public Schools, elementary schools. They're eight and five. So going to be third grade and kindergarten. So we're, you know, we're pretty invested in the school system here, trying to help make it as good as it should be for all students, even before we had kids in it. And now that we have kids in it, it's just continuing that same push. Right. Wow. And then I guess there seems to be kind of like this narrative coming out. The pandemic is eased and things are starting to get better and we are at a point where we can probably open up our schools does does that match your experience (laughs) no i mean you know it's it's really it's it's challenging for teachers across the country like right now it's it's like no like science is saying like this is not you know this is not something that we can just be like schools are going to open up and so it's really scary and upsetting you know, for people to be like, oh, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. Just trust us. It's like, no, 
Like the science is there, right? It's been proven. Our country is not doing what other countries around the world have done to reduce it, where they've opened schools. Like it's just, you're making false equivalencies, you know? And so, so for me, it's really hard because like, yeah, like there's a lot of people trying to make things safer, but it's not safe, right? And so this whole summer, teachers are saying like, we should be spending this time creating professional development and having, you know, making sure all our kids have, have laptops, not one per house, but one per family, like one per child, uh, giving the parents like training in, in the programs we're gonna be using and the students and the teachers. But like, we're, as educators, we're fighting to, to say like, we really wanna be with your kids. Like we, that's what we chose this profession for because we like working with children. Um, but because we love those children so much, we are not gonna be in person with them because it's not safe to do so yet. And like, that seems like a major, it is a major inconvenience, it's hard, right? But we are not gonna regret five years from now being like, well, we missed off on that one year. We're gonna regret a student, a parent, a family member, a teacher. We're gonna regret the loss of a life. And so like, like <laughs> you know, as much as I wanna be with our students and as much as we wanna make it easier for parents who have to go to work and all those things, like there's other fights we can have. And so we should have this remote learning push. We should have a, a push for parents to learn the, the systems that we're gonna be using, the teachers to learn them better, the students too. And then we should do that and then the push on top of that should be we should be helping parents who have to go to work what are some what are the best things we can do to help out you like how can we advocate for the you know for your city government state government federal government to be funding you so you can stay home and be safer too or like what are what are some systems that we can put in place to have you know like a place for kids to go if you have to work because what people seem to forget is that like if we open schools in some sort of weird hybrid model that is not going to be the warm fuzzy school that people think about right it's going to be a place where kids are wearing masks they're going to get in trouble if they don't wear their masks right they're going to be meeting teachers for the first time wearing masks you know and it, it's it's a whole range it shouldn't take this pandemic for for people to start caring about all the things that our students and citizens of our cities need and then i guess what are your immediate reactions when you hear ultimatums uh, like from the president or from Secretary DeVos saying public schools have to reopen or they're getting their funding cut. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you know, for a long time, right, it's always been people who aren't familiar with schools or public schools or don't send their kids to those same places just issuing ultimatums like this. I mean, Trump and DeVos are on another level for me in terms of that, but it's, it's the same kind of idea. I think, I mean, I know like in, in Chicago public schools, like I've taught since 2007 and our students and their families and the communities are not supported enough. They're not invested in it enough. And I've lost students to, to community violence, to police violence, to tragic accidents. And, and I know what that feels like, you know, in terms of just secondary trauma, like not being responsible for it, but having to, to see an empty desk or to see a Facebook tribute and to things like to students I've taught. And it's the worst thing that as a professional, a teacher can ever experience. And I, I wish, I don't want anyone else to ever experience that. And that's secondary, right? That's not even me being responsible for that. I cannot begin to imagine the pain, the everything that a teacher would feel if they were responsible for getting a student, you know, sick or, and then that student gets their family member sick and then somebody dies. Like that's, you're, it, it would be very difficult as an educator to come back from that because our basic job, our number one job is to keep kids safe, like period, right? 
kids have to feel safe in the classroom to be able to learn. Like that's just how, that's the first step. And that's the first step that every educator learns. And so if we're not able to keep our kids safe or they're, you know, and it's the ultimate like offense, I guess, just to be given some ultimatum, like, and to make it seem like that we don't want to be with our, our students, right? Or to seem like, I, I full on understand that remote learning last spring was not as good as it, as it should have been, right? Or could have been. And it, the only reason it was halfway even remotely decent was because teachers helped each other figure it out and figure it out with parents how to make it somewhat decent, right? And so it's just like, we're fighting these fights um, for basic safety of, of people. And that's, you know, obviously for me, that's the wrong route we need to be going. In. How can we make it that if they're unable to work, whatever, then they can stay home and we can give them money to be able to do that, right? Or, you know, how can we figure out a way to make their employment you know, much safer than it is. You know, the ordinances on moratoriums on evictions, those need to be put in place and fully enforced, right? There should be no one being evicted from their place of residence at this point in time, right? Like water bills and all those things, right? It should just be, we're gonna, you know, it's it's gonna be an expense, but it's, 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 it's a value of life, you know? And so figuring out all the ways to do that. And I think it's just, there's not enough conversations that involve the vast majority of the people in this country of what it could look like and should look like. And also like what, you know, like other countries are doing certain things and yeah, our population may be bigger and all these things, but we can figure out versions of that to make it work here to again, keep everyone safe until, you know, until it's a, t a point that we're able to kind of go back to whatever the, the way of, of life was before. And hopefully it's a better way of life for a lot of people, um, but trying to figure out a way to make it, you know, what it should be to keep everyone safe. Yeah, this is actually a really nice place to pivot uh, to this next question. You're one of the many teachers who've been very, very vocal on social media, just about this whole new period and, you know, especially pushing for uh, remote learning. But let's just comment on Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Found one of your tweets. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and one of your tweets in protest of schools reopening and called you a self-righteous little fortune cookie. Yeah. A self-righteous little fortune cookie. What 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 does that even mean? <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm active on Twitter. And so like I got this person who tweeted at me saying, like, you were just exposed on Tucker Carlson. I'm like, what what is this? What is this person talking about? Let me just investigate this show that I would never watch, you know? And so I turn it on and within like three minutes or whatever, like he starts talking about schools reopening and then he says something like teachers unions don't want your schools open just look at this you know self tweet from the self-righteous little fortune cookie and he like reads reads my tweet on the air with you know my picture on, on my twitter profile or whatever and then i was just like are you kidding me you know and like it was it was super you know like surreal i guess i think the most pressing question is did you put self-righteous little fortune cookie in your twitter bio now or <laughs> my my, my uh my, it's my my partner's new uh, favorite nickname to call me you know when i'm being annoying she's like oh we're trying to be a self-righteous little fortune cookie um she, she enjoys it she thinks it's hilarious and i've got you know if you i think it's epic so i think like more importantly you have insight into like a student's life that no news organization can give you have this perspective that it's truthful and it's honest and it's straight from like the source so it's like a little bizarre that you know some like cable news guy could call you self-righteous 
you've, you've seen this, you know the demographics of your school, you know the challenges that you're facing in remote learning. I mean, you know about the impact it's been on your community, on your colleagues, on your students. It's just very strange. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I think for teachers, COVID has been real from the start. And, you know, I think a lot of places, you know, we saw people protesting because they couldn't get haircuts, right? So, like, COVID was abstract to a lot of people. But for teachers, because we interact with so many people, you know, our students and their parents and all that, like, it was real. And, like, we had students losing family members last spring, you know? So, like, it was like, oh, wow, this is real. This is intense. You know, like, this is affecting lots of people. And it's affecting, you know, Black communities and Latinx communities at a higher level. Um, up to this point too and so like and that's the demographic of Chicago public schools and so it was very real for us in Chicago and so one of the things as a teacher that I've had to learn right is like there's nothing more than I'd rather do than just be able to teach my students and not have to not have to publicly advocate because that's exhausting and hard but it was just frustrating to realize that to effectively push for the things our students need you have to publicly put yourself out there um, and not to glorify yourself, but to glorify the demands that our schools um, and students should have and community should have, you know, but like I'm working to be a good teacher, but to, to be a teacher that parents want their kids to have, right, like you have to be good in the classroom, no doubt, but like you also, in my view, need to be fighting for everything that that their students should have had from the beginning, right, and so like you know, in Chicago and in major cities across this country and every school district, like our students should have always had more. And like the struggle has always been going on to, to make their schools, to make the schools equitable for everybody. And so that, that fight is absolutely exhausting and absolutely frustrating. And it's, you know, I, like, I think I'm going into my 13th or 14th year. I don't know what, <laughs> since 2007 teaching, right? And like, it's just like, I'm so tired of, of fighting the same fights, but also like, it's essential that I do. It's essential that I use my privileges in any form to help advocate for those things. And there's a lot of, you know, negative things that come with that, you know, like it's really hard and it becomes really personal. It makes it more challenging, but it's, it's also part of the work that I don't think um, many colleges of education really fully tell you, you know, when you're going into teaching, like, not only is teaching hard and figuring out how to work with 14 year olds is hard because they change every day and their prefrontal cortex hasn't developed. But on top of that, you're going to need to fight for everything that they deserve and have fun with that, you know? And so <laughs> that's just not, you know, that just isn't the thing that you think about when you become a teacher. And so, you know, just having to learn all that and, and, and figure out how to navigate that world and not burn out, you know, and, and network with people who are trying to do the same thing to find support. Wow. Last question. We're seeing teachers protesting both in person and on social media. We're seeing the hashtags like 14 days, no new cases, lives over lessons, not one teacher, not one kid. What do you think is the next step in the protests for teachers as kind of the pressure increases to bring on in-person teaching? For me, like I would full on, I would love to see like, I mean, I wouldn't want it to have to come to this, but if people don't listen to us and want and you know want to make our kids unsafe and our students and communities unsafe then for me it's like it needs to be a national teacher strike and in that strike it wouldn't just be like now we need remote learning it'd be like all the stuff i've said but like our, we need remote learning every student needs to have access to internet all the time we need a moratorium on evictions like all these things that would help out society would would go for you know for in that in that too because you know the 
the Chicago Teachers Union, which I'm a part of, the one thing, one of the many things I love about it is it's always talking about bargaining for the common good, right? And so like, not is it not just gonna be our pay and benefits as teachers, it's gonna be what are these demands that we can put in place to help out society, right? Because if society is stronger, right, then everything's better, right? And so, you know, like a national teacher strike, I would think would be one thing. And in that national teacher strike, you could argue for actual changes to the criminal justice system and to, you know, stopping police brutality. Like you could argue all these things because it affects our students and our lives as educators all the time. And it could be this huge, for me, it should be this huge, beautiful thing, you know, and it's led by black activists and and people who have been putting in this work for years who don't ever get this this light that they should but teachers could be a part of that right and i think that would be huge i don't know if that's going to happen what i'm afraid is going to happen is that some schools are going to open up some cities are going to open up and there's going to be tragedy that happens and then because of those schools opening early it's going to then go remote because everyone's like oh my god that happened right and so that's my fear um and so i think you know what I'm hearing from teachers is people are like, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to teach or I'm going to retire early or I'm going to take this unpaid leave of absence or all these other things that are not going to help society in any way. It's going to put more strain on, on everybody, right? On our governments, on our, on our society. And so, you know, it just comes down to what's the, what's the best to keep everyone safe. And so I, you know, unfortunately, it seems like it's going to require a lot of pushback by, by educators and cities in towns across this country to, to push back against this motion of opening schools just for the sake of opening schools. So yeah, so for me, like, if it came to that, I would, I would want to see a, a massive teacher strike about that. I'm happy that you realized that it's, it's a much more complicated issue and that uh, if that strike was to happen, that there would have to be other, you know, kind of like societal elements that, um, that would have to be addressed. So I think that's really, really cool. That, um, that you would want to bring that into the conversation. Uh, well, everyone, that's Dave Stieber, teacher from uh, Chicago Public Schools. He is amazing, and um, he's more than just a uh, self-righteous little fortune cookie. He is, he, is, <laughs> he is more than that. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You are awesome. Thank you so much. I, I had a lot of fun. So I appreciate you giving voice to educators and letting us, you know, share our, our stories of what, of what it's really like. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the Dell. Thank you for taking some time to speak with me. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization. I'm a special education teacher in Milwaukee Public Schools for the past 28 years. And I am currently on full release to the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association as president. The organization you lead is the official teachers union for Milwaukee? Yes. Obviously, as educators, we are always thinking about the academic learning of our students and their social emotional wellness. But we have also been very concerned since March and continuing until today, 34% of families in the United States couldn't make their rent or mortgage payment in the month of July. Very concerned about housing and evictions and unemployment disappearing in the end of July and Congress playing politics with people's just real survival. 
in addition to making you know a demand in Wisconsin of our state secretary of health, Andrea Palm, to take statewide action, we need immediate, clear action from Congress and from the federal government to support families, to support children, to ensure that our public schools have the basic resources they need to move forward, and simply just the basic resource of guaranteed Wi-Fi and connectivity for our students and families is critical. And in 2020, it should be seen as a basic right to access for all families and for all Americans, really. I think it's definitely a place that educators never thought that we would be, but we have to pull together as local unions, state unions, national unions, as a coalition of public education workers who are committed to making sure that our students and their families and the people who work for them are not overlooked in this really difficult crisis. What would it take to reopen schools safely this fall? I know that's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question um, because, you know, right now school districts are being forced to choose between closure and putting their students and staff at risk. And that is that is a failure from the top to the bottom, from federal and state to county and city governments. In Wisconsin, over the past two to three previous weeks, we were seeing new case records regularly. And so because government has failed the people, we have not seen a sharp reversal of the current trend. When you look at the state of Wisconsin, there are only two counties in the entire state that are ranked as having low risk. Every other county in the state of Wisconsin, about 90% of them are listed as high risk counties. There are about eight or nine counties that are considered moderate risk. And these are suburban counties, outstate, very rural counties, along with, you know, cities. And so we don't have enough testing materials. We don't have enough testing sites. We don't have adequate contact tracing. So we don't have control or even, we can't even look at data and say, you know, we're not where we want to be, but we're slowly moving in that direction. Um, So there is no way to put people back into school as normal. I'm sure you've heard the term super spreader event. I'm just going to tell you that classrooms and schools are super spreader events. Daily super spreader events. Daily. Um, I will also tell you that children are social beings and they want to be close to their friends and classmates. They also want to be close to their teachers. I've had, you know, teachers and other educators tell me that they've been, say, for example, at the grocery store, and they will be masked up, grabbing their groceries, trying to get in and out as fast as they can, and a student sees them. And students can't help themselves. Public schools are the heart of our communities, and so when students see their counselor or their teacher or their librarian or the paraprofessionals in their schools, 
they run up to them, they hug them, they greet them. And it's, you know, that is in normal conditions when we've been apart since March. And keep in mind that no one really said goodbye to their students. When people left on March 13th, left their classrooms, prepped to open up and start school again on Monday, March 16th. Teachers prepped their chalkboards and all of their materials to welcome students back on that Monday. No one got to say goodbye or no one got to say, hey, we're going to be apart for a while, but you know, we're going to come back together as a class. That didn't happen. We are so far away, which is heartbreaking. Frankly, it's enraging. We are so far away of even imagining a scenario of going back um, because there has been such massive cutting and disinvestment in public schools over the past 20 years. We need a massive influx of K through 12 public school stimulus and relief funding from the federal government. And the federal government seems to find ways to always bail out business. Right. Public school students of this country, they need a bailout. And it will be, you know, the, really the people of this country must demand that their elected officials value the children of this country as much as they value making sure that, for example, Shake Shack stays solvent. Right, which is ridiculous. How many schools and students also are in your district? We have 135 public schools in the city of Milwaukee. Oh, wow. With approximately 79,000 students. We still have school districts who plan on sending children back into classrooms with 40 and 42 and 44 children in them. There will be no social distancing. So it's... Um, it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. It is. What are your immediate reactions to this ultimatum that President Trump and Secretary DeVos are giving to public schools across the country saying, we're cutting funding unless schools reopen? Yeah, I think they should try it. Mm. I'm just going to tell you, no one signed up to take this kind of a risk. Mm. And children depend on the educators in their unions to advocate for them, to stand in the way when people like Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos value a capitalist economy over their lives. You know, uh, Betsy DeVos is an unrepentant privatizer. You know the phrase putting the fox in charge of the hen house? Mm, yeah. Betsy DeVos has spent her time and resources for years building up unaccountable private voucher and charter schools that do not outperform public schools, private and voucher charter schools that discriminate and sort and select and interview in the students and families that they want to work with and gatekeep out the students and families that they don't want to work with. I actually just heard of this during a, another conversation with an educator. I don't know if if it's just me and I was unaware, I don't know if a lot of Americans are aware of that. These schools that she's been a huge proponent of, they are, they discriminate quite intensely. They discriminate lawfully and openly 
and proudly. Students who do not speak English as their first language do mm. not, you know, have a right to be enrolled and instructed in their home language. I'm a teacher uh, for students with special needs. They are under no responsibility to accept or serve students with special needs. And beyond that, they discriminate in ways that are hateful and really abhorrent in terms of taking stances that are clearly anti-LGBTQ, taking stances that, you know, archaic beliefs that men are heads of household and women are to submit. Like when you say, what doesn't Betsy DeVos get? I think Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump get it very well. Wow. I think sometimes when Americans hear the word discrimination, they think of racial discrimination. But the discrimination that she's a proponent of, it actually goes way further than that. So much further. So Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump wake up in the morning thinking about how they can further privilege and pad the pockets of the rich, right? And they're proud to do it. I think that they understand very well what they're doing, but I absolutely agree with you that average Americans can't, it's, it's such an unbelievable proposition right. that public tax dollars go to support discriminatory private religious schools that do not, again, do not outperform uh, public schools uh, and are really money-making profit opportunities for these people. It's not about, you know, a public education as a fundamental building block of a democracy. It's unbelievable. I want to kind of bring in a little bit of positivity into this. It's a little bit of a heavy, you know, topic run. But can you tell me some things that gives you hope? This morning, I had the opportunity to greet 125 new teachers at their new teacher orientation at eight o'clock this morning. And I am used to doing this in a large room in person with them. First time doing it on Zoom. I think that being with those 125 new teachers who are embarking on something that no one's ever done before gives me hope. That's something that, you know, no matter how difficult this is, educators are still going to show up for our students. And so honestly, I think that over the years, sometimes folks would say to me like, oh, you, it's so great that you're a teacher. Um, you know, you must be so patient and giving. And <laughs> I was very honest with them and saying, you know, I can't think of another job where when I get to my job every morning, there are a line of people who are like jumping in their line on the playground, waving at me, smiling, happy to see me and waiting to hug me. So I said, you know, I think I'm actually the one that's making out here. So I think that educators regularly return to our students really for hope. You know, no matter how difficult we think this is what students and families are up against in this country is massive. You know, I'm also a big believer in being hopeful, but 
part of what keeps me hopeful is the fact that you keep fighting, right? Right. So you have to keep centering what's wrong and what's inequitable and what's not acceptable. And you have to keep fighting for people's access, equity, and humanity. So I also think that that keeps people hopeful too, is that, you know, we have to stay fighting. And especially at this time in our country where we have no leadership at the top. Amy, thank you so much. This was, this was incredible. Excellent. Thanks for asking me. It was really fun. Absolutely. Everyone, this is Amy Mazalko, president of the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. Thank you so much again. Thanks for listening in. That's The Delve. I'll be back for a special news edition on Monday and for a regular scheduled episode drop next Friday.